stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So it has not been business as usual for Canada's parliament. And to some extent, that's to be expected, obviously, uh, with public health measures and, and just everything going on uh, with the pandemic. It's not realistic for Parliament to be functioning as normal as it was prior to this. But that doesn't and shouldn't excuse uh, the way Parliament has been treated over the last few months and, and the government's uh, apparent disdain for uh, for meeting with Parliament and submitting itself to the kind of, of scrutiny and debate that, that really governments need to. So what's the right balance here? I mean, there, there's been attempts to find some balance in terms of having committees meet uh, virtually, using technology, having uh, limited gatherings in the House of Commons uh, to have some debate, and obviously certain things do need to be voted on. We look at other countries with comparable government systems, even looking at other provinces. It seems like other jurisdictions uh, have been more effective in trying to ensure that their legislatures can function. So what do we make of what's been going on in Ottawa? And how do we better address that that balance to ensure, especially in a minority government situation, uh, that the opposition is not relegated to the sidelines, uh, that there are questions being asked, uh, that there is scrutiny of what the government's planning to do, uh, and that the parliamentarians, as much as possible, are able to vote on pieces of legislation. It's an interesting uh, new report out from the uh, McDonald-Laurier Institute called COVID's Collateral Contagion. Why faking Parliament is no way to govern in a crisis. Now, joining us uh, to talk more about some of these issues uh, is the author of this piece, uh, Christian Luprecht. joins us on the line here this afternoon. He's a professor at the Royal Military College and at Queen's University, also a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, now, again, I know you're certainly not arguing that the Parliament should be conducting business as usual, and I don't think anybody's arguing that. Uh, but what stands out to you, though, in terms of where, where, where parliamentarians and where the government in particular really failed to, to live up to what's reasonably to be expected in a democracy like ours? So we've seen unprecedented restrictions on individuals, uh, especially with regards to mobility, but other restrictions as well. And at the same time, we've seen unprecedented levels of spending for this shorter period of time. So the government this year will probably spend um, almost as much as it spends in an entire fiscal year simply on the uh, crisis. And so from that, one would infer if we have unprecedented restrictions, unprecedented spending, we would also want to make sure in a democracy we have, um, we have the same level of unprecedented debate and parliamentary audit of those restrictions and spending. But we've actually seen the exact converse, which is that we've minimized the ability of parliament to weigh in. So this is problematic for a couple of reasons. One is that in the Westminster parliamentary system, the constitutional convention is that the people get to decide on the money being spent, the people get to decide on the money being raised, that is to say your taxes, and the people also get to hold the government accountable for that spending. Um, by virtue of the fact that Parliament um, is sitting so minimally, it means that Parliament can't really perform those functions. And Parliament also has three basic functions of scrutinizing the government, 
of providing authorization for legislation and a representative function of making sure that the maximum diversity and pluralism of views in the country is represented and goes into the public deliberations and the outputs that government produces. And so if parliament is only meeting minimally, then it can't adequately perform that representative function. Now, how minimally is it meeting? Between July 2019 and uh, June 2020, 40 sitting days, uh, which is unprecedented in parliamentary history. And this year, um, the government has essentially handicapped parliament uh, for six months now, unprecedented again in Canadian political history. And so even if we have all total sitting days that are still scheduled, we would have 86 sitting days, which is the fewest of any government outside of an election year since 1940, so in 80 years. Wow. Uh, now, obviously, there are unique circumstances that uh, Parliament has had to deal with in recent months, and I guess there have been challenges in getting MPs to Ottawa and having a certain number of, of MPs in the House at any given time. But obviously, Canada is not unique in facing these challenges. We can look to, to other parliamentary systems, UK, Australia, New Zealand, for example, uh, that seem to have done a much better job figuring this out. So why is Canada such an outlier here? So... Indeed, the three countries you mentioned, who are our closest sort of cousins in terms of Westminster parliamentary systems, have fully reconstituted their parliaments. And the parliamentary administration, um, over a month ago, already provided a report to government that it is prepared to resume parliament in all of its functions um, and has provided various models uh, to the government to do that, including hybrid models and, and so forth. And the government has rejected both the precedent from our Westminster allies as well as uh, the offer from the parliamentary administration to take up full sittings of parliament. Now, we can sort of possibly understand this because it is a minority government. Minority governments are always sort of trying to keep their head above water and trying to stay alive. So the more parliament sits, the more there's an opportunity perhaps for the government to fall. So you try to minimize those opportunities uh, for the government possibly to fall and you try to extend the lifeline of that minority government. That's also why initially the government came with this unprecedented proposition of basically um, unfettered spending authority for 21 months. You'll recall this debate back in March that the government quickly had to uh, withdraw. Um, but, uh, I mean, if we, if that, that's, um, um, the, the ultimately what the government is not doing is the benefit of a minority government is precisely that it has to work and negotiate with other parties, and it is generally thought that that produces um, pretty good outcomes and possibly better outcomes than strict majority governments. But instead of embracing that opportunity, it seems the government's minimizing opportunity for parliamentary audit. And when it does need the consent of parliament, it makes these transactional deals, as it did with the NDP, for 10 paid vacation days for all Canadians in return for effectively um, uh, neutering, handicapping uh, parliament for an additional four months. And so this is fundamentally a violation of the uh, of, of parliamentary convention, but it is also a violation of the fundamental constitutional principle that governs this country, which is responsible government, which is that government is responsible to the people through parliament, which aggregates the interests by the people. 
Right. Certainly there was an argument early on that there was uh, a need for speed, essentially. The government needed to to be able to respond quickly to dealing with the pandemic. And I think there was a concern that, um, you know, that, that prolonged debate or, you know, the other various functions of parliament might slow down that response. What, what do you make of that argument? Well, it's simply uh, not true. Uh, that Parliament has demonstrated, not just in Canada, but across the Western worlds, Parliaments have demonstrated, even in minority situations, that they have been willing and able to approve the requests made of them expeditiously, without delay, and mean, minimizing any debate that uh, could hamper the government and power from spending the money and implementing the measures that are necessary. There is not a democracy, a parliamentary democracy that I'm aware of, where anybody has accused parliament of dragging its feet and in return possibly jeopardizing the financial health of individuals or of the economy or the restrictions that governments deemed appropriate under the circumstances. So somehow to say that Parliament hampers us is simply uh, not an accurate uh, way of portraying um, the matter. The only precedent that we have where we have the belief that Parliament might have hampered us is, of course, Charles I, who famously prorogued Parliament and then governed um, without Parliament for 11 years. And the aftermath of that, aside from Charles I's fate, uh, fate, uh, was the compromise that um, a parliament and the executive uh, should um, provide this sort of, uh, should be able to keep each other in line, and that the executive would respect parliamentary sovereignty. And my argument here is that what we've seen the government do, look, we have conventions and we have the constitution because it sets the ground rules, the framework within which the game of politics is played. It's like the basic rules for hockey or for football or whatever sport you want to you take, and we all agree we're going to play the game within those rules. But what the government is actually trying to do is fundamentally change the rules within which the game is being played. And we have 300 years of precedent that those rules work, and they work precisely because they provide the appropriate, um, the appropriate sort of equilibrium um, between power for the political executive um, under the royal prerogative and the discretion that it needs, but also the appropriate level of scrutiny, authorization, and representation that Parliament provides. So when you say that we need to reconstitute Parliament and all its, all its functions, how do we do that under the current circumstances? Well, uh, so you mentioned the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, each of which have chosen slightly different models. Um, but certainly uh, they have managed to ensure that uh, Parliament's uh, ability to debate uh, is no less than it was before. The opportunity for questions to be tabled, also written questions, the opportunity for members' bills to be introduced, but also for the government to introduce uh, fiscal updates or a budget, so precisely to be able to um, authorize and be held to account for the public spending um, in which it engages, all of which the government has uh, engineered to curtail in Canada. So it is not hard to do. We know how this is done. And so the sort of excuses that we couldn't possibly provide a fiscal update because we don't know where fiscal matters are at, well, it seems to be work just fine with our closest uh, partner uh, allies uh, within the Westminster parliamentary tradition. So it does, this doesn't have to mean recalling every single MP back to Ottawa and having 338 MPs in, in the House of Commons. 
Um, no, and this is, for instance, what the UK has, has, has opted for a hybrid model that seems to yeah. work quite well, uh, so that every member of parliament uh, can be afforded the same privileges and opportunities that they had uh, before, uh, before the, uh, the crisis here. Um, but I am surprised that the prime minister seems to be able to find time to join in uh, mass um, uh, public demonstrations and there is able to um, uh, to find time to uh, engage uh, with the public in that fashion, but he finds it somehow too risky and too dangerous uh, to recall parliamentarians to Ottawa. So either way, we can either resort for a hybrid model or I think uh, uh, there are some contradictions in the prime minister's own behavior um, with regards to uh, his claims about not recalling parliament but his own conduct in public. Uh, so perhaps it would be helpful to have a bit more consistency uh, from the uh, political, uh, from the prime minister um on this file yeah and at the same time too i mean it is a minority government so i mean if the opposition parties are prepared to assert themselves uh and demand uh that, that there be accountability demand uh that the house meet and that these matters get debated on and voted on uh that under those circumstances the government would probably have to relent so do the opposition parties need to to take a stand well, it certainly appears that that's where all the parties are starting to arrive at in terms of their conclusions, um, uh, that they, uh, their patience with the way the government is playing the game is wearing thin. Um, the reason why we have the government continue to be able to stay alive this way is because, in effect, the federal NDP uh, does not have the money to go to the polls, and so it will do just about anything to continue to prop up uh, the government, and the minority government knows that. Uh, they have the uh, the federal NDP effectively over a barrel. So, uh, in, in, um, uh, but, uh, so that also reminds us that perhaps we could have a more effective system at election financing that would give the parties the sort of independence they need uh, to be able to make the sort of decisions um, that afford them, um, uh, allow them to, uh, to draw more independent conclusions in minority situations such as the ones that we find ourselves in. Right, much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, your piece today, COVID's collateral contagion, why faking parliament is no way to govern in a crisis. Professor Luprecht, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, all the best. Uh, Christian Luprecht, he's a professor at uh, Royal Military College, also at Queen's University, and is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Our number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. Back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.